Blog Talk Radio. January 24th, 2018 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And here we typically discuss news, politics, and culture from an individualist perspective. I'm Amy Peacock. We're doing something a little different today because I have an interview that I've been wanting to do for quite some time. I have the honor of speaking to a doctor, and doctors are really busy, so I'm really grateful that he's taking the time to talk to me today. I'm going to be speaking to Dr. HD. That's what we're calling him because he's actually anonymous because that is the way that he needs to be in order to dispense useful information out to the world on his blog. He's an endocrinologist. I don't know where he practices. I assume it's not Southern California because there's been little barbs about living in Southern California. Um, So he practices endocrinology somewhere. And he started a little bit over a year ago a blog called Hormones Demystified. And we're going to talk to him about the blog about a little bit about his practice, some things about medicine. But the thing that's interesting is that the reason we are talking to Dr. HD today is basically the subject matter that we're going to discuss because I found his blog doing the sort of thing that really drives rational doctors like Dr. HD nuts, which is I was out there sort of trying to be my own doctor on the internet And that's how I found his blog. So maybe Dr. HD through his blog is sort of curing me of my tendency to be my own doctor. Um, But that is how he got here today. A little bit ironic, but we are going to discuss, that's going to be sort of the primary focus after a few medical questions. I mean, he's a doctor. I've got him here. I've got to ask a few medical questions of general interest. And then we're going to talk about this issue of methodology of how rational people should approach all the wealth of information and misinformation and all the so-called health gurus and everything else on the internet. Uh, Plus, you know, what is it about people that makes them mishandle this misinformation? So Dr. HD, welcome. And thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thanks, Amy. I'm really excited to be here and talking to you and you can just Call me HD. I feel like we've emailed can I call back you and HD? forth yeah, so much that we can. Yeah, it will be HD can, as we go we just, on. It will. It will be. It will yeah. be HD as we go on. We can and, dispense you know, with the formalities. <laughs> okay. Now, anybody who's picking up on the live stream over at Facebook, you're not going to be able to hear him. You're going to have to go to the blog talk link, which I have on the Don't Let It Go Unheard page, in, in order to hear him. I don't know why I was able to hear and got the thing connected, and I was able to see the 
sound bars increase through the Blog Talk sound and on my Mevo, but it's just it's just not getting the sound through. So this is an old fashioned podcast. It's just going to have sound, and that's just as good because you can't see HD over here. Um, so I said how I found you and how ironic it is because I found you doing the very thing that you like to complain about on your blog. Um, and that being said, what we need to do at the beginning here is a little bit of a disclaimer because we are going to be talking about medical topics. So I copied the disclaimer from your blog. I'm going to read it for everybody now. And it's this, and I'm, you know, just, you have this blog. I say this podcast, this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice and no doctor-patient relationship is formed with Dr. HD. I'm not a doctor. Uh, the use of the information on this podcast or in this podcast or any materials that are linked, which I'm not linking anything, if you find it as blog, it's at your own risk, the user's, the listener's own risk. The content of the podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. So that disclaimer being said, what I want to talk about today, and I've told you a bit about this HD, which is at first some, you know, kind of general questions about your background, then some medical questions, and then to go into what I'm calling methodological issues, which have to do with people's approach to medical advice today. And so at first, in, in terms of your background, I listened to the Gender Rebels podcast. Unfortunately, I haven't gotten to Dr. Brett Scher's podcast yet because of my crazy life and I was on Tucker and all of this. But you had said you gotten in, you went you got into endocrinology more because of what you didn't want to do than right. really anything else. And you did mention one positive thing that attracted to you, though, the, the precision of numbers was an appeal to you in a certain way, right? Yes. Uh, initially, that was something that attracted me to endocrinology once I was already in medical school and uh, residency and kind of going through uh, that whole track. I, uh, I liked the aspect of diabetes that was just very, very um you know, hard and clear. It's just, okay, there's a number. We can deal with numbers. It all kind of makes sense. You can figure out, um, you know, how this works based on the numbers. And uh, and that's what kind of drew me in. And ultimately, I realized that the numbers don't mean, uh, or the numbers aren't as, um, as uh, clear and, and uh, providing as clear direction, really, all the time as they should, because there's just so many caveats. And I've written about that before, about right. how we really need to know our assays, you know, the instruments that are measuring things. We need to know the limitations and we need to know what conditions um, people need to be coming into the lab, you know, as far as fasting or avoiding certain medications. Anyway, all that kind of stuff. So it was interesting that, that initially I was attracted to diabetes because I thought, oh, okay, this, this all kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately I learned more and I realized, oh, uh, oops, these <laughs> these numbers um, are are not as helpful as maybe I thought. They they provide a starting point, but they're they're maybe not the end all be all. 
Exactly. And that was one of my follow-ups that I was going to ask you, which is, is there really that much precision after all? Because I have seen you talking, um, like for instance, just even in the Gender Rebels podcast, you had said, oh, I can make a thyroid patient look really good on paper, which it indicates to me that you know that that's not the whole story in your mind, even for thyroid patients, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And okay. um, yeah, it's not it's not necessarily that I think that someone who I make look really good on paper uh, still has symptoms that are definitely attributable to the thyroid if their numbers look good. It's just that their numbers may look good and their thyroid may very well be well controlled, but they may have their symptoms because there are all these other things going on that haven't been addressed. You know, whether it's their right. sleep apnea, their depression, their poor sleep, and you know, whatever it is, it just hasn't really been optimized yet. Right. And one of the things I do want to talk about, and I told you at the very end, is your sort of general health advice for people other, you know, than dealing with the particular, oh, let's make a thyroid look really good on paper, et cetera. Um, so now that we got how you got into this, how, why did you then start the blog? So you're practicing, you're helping people. Why do a blog? Yeah, you know, so I've been doing this for a while now in the neighborhood of 15 years practicing. And um fired up by so many <laughs> different things that come into the office on a regular basis. And I, I think what was really starting to get to me was, or had been getting to me for a long time was people coming in with all of this, I'm doing air quotes right now, research mm-hmm. uh, that was really not based on sound information. And it was it was just incredibly frustrating because people would get very invested in what they had read on websites that have multiple types of fonts and use a lot of caps and different colors. And by the way, that's a, a huge red flag for something that's going to oh, be yeah. histrionic. And, uh, you know, but people would come in uh, toting this stuff and say, okay, you know, here's what I want you to order. And here's the treatment that I want you to prescribe. And, you know, and I'd, be like, okay, whoa, let's uh, slow down a little bit here, back up a few steps, and let me ask you some questions. And, uh, you know, so sometimes people would be responsive to that, you know, because they really seem to value my advice and um, were really trying to get answers. But then there were just a lot more people who seemed to be purely seeking validation of what they already knew to be true, which was not necessarily true. So, um, so that was that was frustrating, and that would get me fired up, and, and that, you know, would happen on a fairly regular basis. And, you know, when I was able to actually counsel people successfully or sort of re-educate them successfully, uh, I would also have this feeling like, oh, man, this is really inefficient. You know, I'm, I'm doing – I'm trying to sort of change the world here, or, you know, one person at a time in an exam room and it, it just didn't feel like I was really accomplishing as much as I wanted to accomplish. And I've always been, you know, pretty ambitious, I guess. And, and then I've also right. just been in the past, past, very much past. Uh, I was more creative and uh, probably just a little bit more well-rounded of a person before medicine just kind of became most of my life. So, uh, so I wanted to scratch that creative itch again and, mm-hmm. and, um, and start, doing something that tickled a different part of my brain. So that was the motivation for starting the blog. I wanted to try to help people. I wanted to scratch my creative itch 
And then I just figured, you know, we'll see what comes out of it. And I thought maybe this will, you know, this will be something that I can do for a few months. And if it feels right, I'll continue. And if it doesn't, I'll just pull the plug. Well, I've already benefited from it. I think I told you I'd gone there looking because I had a friend who talked about how low-dose naltrexone was the latest, most awesome thing for people with autoimmune disorders. And I've got, you know, Hashimoto's a mild case of it, I've told you. And so, oh, of course, you know, let's go look into this. And you had the post talking about it. So, you know, I had to go uh, look at it. What it did at least get me to the point, because I I was still at the point of, oh, well, maybe try it. You know, if it's not going to hurt me, maybe try it, you know. And then I went and looked at the price of this stuff. No, no, no. I'm done. I'm done. I'm not going to try, you know, some crazy (laughs) experimental thing for my mild Hashimoto's. You know, again, it was that there's no real side effect. I was willing to try it if there was no real side effect and if it wasn't too expensive. It's kind of expensive. So, I didn't know. so at least you got me to that point. Uh, we'll see if you can totally cure me of my going out there and being stupid about my health by scouring the internet throughout our discussion. Um, so this is great. And I, everybody, I recommend you go check out the blog. Of course, at the blog, it's not like you have a doctor-patient relationship with HD here, but you can get a lot of good general information that you can take to your doctor and respectfully <laughs> submit to your doctor the, the information if you're interested in having it contribute to your health care. Obviously, be, be nice to your doctor, too. Um, you know, I feel bad because now probably – HD, I'm going to go to my doctor and bring your information there. I'm going to have to figure out how to do that in a graceful way. Um, oh, yeah, your doc's probably going to cringe when uh, when you pull out whatever I've written. <laughs> although, although, if they although, actually although, read it, they'd be like, oh, okay. But the doctor I'll go Sorry, to go is a general medicine doctor, and so since you're an endocrinologist, maybe that's not going to be so bad for him. You see what I mean? So we'll see. Right. We'll see how it goes. I'll have to see if, how gracefully I can do this. So let's talk a little bit about thyroid. I have a personal interest in it. Uh, most of your practice you've said is thyroid and then also transgender therapy, which I think will be interesting to my listeners. And we're going to get to that in a little. In terms of thyroid conditions, you said you primarily deal with thyroid cancer. I know a little bit about it. I hope I'm never going to need treatment for it. I've got Hashimoto's, and I understand it is. My immune system's attacking my thyroid. That's right, right? That can, and then it impairs right. the function of the thyroid. So what other conditions besides thyroid cancer and Hashimoto's can impair thyroid function? What else is out there in that space? Um, well, there's, there's not too much. I mean, most people who develop hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism, they're going to develop it because of an autoimmune attack against the thyroid. It's just that in hypothyroidism, it's the autoimmune attack that's causing a destruction of the thyroid's ability to make thyroid hormone. And then in autoimmune hyperthyroidism, it's uh, an autoimmune attack that's stimulating the thyroid to, to make more thyroid hormone. But um, so most people who, who have one of those two conditions, it'll be because of an autoimmune thing. The other um, th- conditions that cause the thyroid to not, work appropriately are, are going to be much less common. You know, for example, someone having uh, radiation to the neck as a, as a child, um, you know, that could cause hypothyroidism or obviously someone who has their thyroid surgically removed, of course, mm-hmm. they're going to have hypothyroidism. But, um, you know, other conditions in the body are usually not going to directly affect 
the thyroid function. There are some medications out there that people take um, that could potentially interfere with thyroid function, but anything that's going to majorly do it is uh, is a pretty rare type of drug. You know, certain types of chemotherapy type drugs can do it, but hmm. you know, for the average person, they don't. I don't think they really need to worry too much that there's going to be some other condition that's going to ding their thyroid too. So for most of us who have thyroid issues, it's not necessarily Hashimoto's, but it would be another type of autoimmune disorder. Is oh, no, that it? It, it, it's, most, it's mostly Hashimoto's. So Hashimoto's refers wow. to the, the, um, the, the chronic attack, the chronic autoimmune right. attack on the thyroid that causes that slow destruction of the thyroid's ability to make thyroid hormone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for, for hypothyroidism, it's usually due to Hashimoto's. So the, mm-hmm. the Hashimoto's is the autoimmune attack, and then the hypothyroidism is the end result of that autoimmune right. attack. Right. And then for the hyper people, it's some other combination? Uh, yeah, or for just... people who are hyperthyroid, also known as Graves' disease, there are these stimulating antibodies that the immune system makes. So as opposed to okay. the destructive okay. antibodies that are found in Hashimoto's, okay. the the stimulating antibodies basically just go to the thyroid and turn it okay. on. And the thyroid and, and responds so, by churning out hormone. And so, so the Hashimoto's, when they end up with hypo, they end up with lower thyroid hormone. You can treat them by supplementing, but with the Graves or Gra- Graves disease, as you said, is that when they remove the thyroid completely or destroy it with radiation in order to treat? Is that the way it goes then? Yeah, Those are two of the options. Uh, The third option is to take what's known as an antithyroid medication, which is essentially Mm. a pill that just dials the production of thyroid hormone down. So um, oftentimes that's the the first-line therapy, but sometimes people get uh, radioactive iodine as first-line therapy. Very rarely do people get surgery as a first-line therapy because it's terribly invasive and we usually have other ways that we can treat it, you know, namely mm-hmm. the antithyroid drug or the radioiodine. Okay. Yeah. So I had a friend that had the radio. I just didn't realize that basically the most of the universe here was because of autoimmune disorders. That's the part I did not get. So you've already educated me. So um, with Hashimoto's then, it just seems like there's this explosion of people out there talking about, oh, they've got Hashimoto's. Are thyroid conditions being diagnosed more than they used to be, uh, you know, have they, has it always existed about at the same rate in the population? Or do you think that yeah. people are getting this more often? Cause it just seems like, Oh, every fifth person has Hashimoto's or something. I, and I was gonna ask you that. How prevalent yeah. is it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I would say there's maybe three to six cases per 10,000 people. Uh, but if you look at just women, the prevalence in women is about 2%. So it's, Oh, I thought it was more common that, than that. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing is that I don't think it's really being diagnosed more often. It's probably being misdiagnosed more often. And mm. um, yeah, if we're, if we're not careful here, I'll, I'll get way way off on my soapbox about naturopaths and other sort of fringe practitioners who diagnose everyone with hypothyroidism. But it, you know, it seems to me that a lot of the the sort of allure of diagnosing someone with hypothyroidism uh, for these practitioners who maybe don't necessarily have the knowledge base is that the symptoms of hypothyroidism are generally pretty nonspecific and they could be Mm -hmm. symptoms of almost any condition. So 
if you diagnose someone with hypothyroidism, it's quite satisfying for both the practitioner and the patient at that moment that the diagnosis is made because you say, mm-hmm. wow, you know, oh, all these symptoms I was having, there's an answer that explains everything. That's awesome. And, uh, and all I have to do is take this pill and I'm going to feel better. <laughs> one little oh, that pill, rocks. Right. What, uh, you know, one, t- one tiny little pill um, and you're saved. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's one of those circumstances where with these practitioners, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. They diagnose everyone with hypothyroidism because they don't really know a whole lot about the endocrine system. And they say, all right, you know, and I just, I see this, you know, pretty much every week, multiple times a week where people come in and they say, yeah, I've, I've had hypothyroidism for, you know, several years. Okay. How was it diagnosed? Well, you know, my naturopath made the diagnosis. Oh, can I see your original labs from before you ever started treatment? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think I have them here somewhere. And, and they show me the labs, and I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, you actually don't have hypothyroidism. Uh, you never had hypothyroidism. And you can stop taking thyroid hormone, and now we can try to get to work on figuring out what's actually wrong with you. So wow. that's pretty much how so many people seem to, quote, have hypothyroidism. Now, of course, when you tell me this, I think, do I really have Hashimoto's? Um, but I was diagnosed because of a positive test for the antibodies. And that is part of what you do, right? If you're going to figure out Hashimoto's is the TPO antibodies. Right. Yeah. Right. And I would say that, you know, there are plenty of people who have positive antibodies, but don't have hypothyroidism. So those antibodies have the potential to cause hypothyroidism, but, Unfortunately, I think a lot of people out there use the terms hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's synonymously, mm-hmm. but they're not really synonymous. It just means that if you've got the antibodies, you could eventually develop hypothyroidism. Now, lots of people will present with sort of borderline hypothyroidism or actual hypothyroidism, and, and we'll check the antibodies, and they're positive, and we say, yep, okay, that's probably what's going on here, and let's let's get treatment started. But sometimes people come in with very normal looking thyroid function studies. So, Mm. uh, you know, all those tests, the TSH and T4 and all that, it all looks normal, very normal, not like borderline normal, but stone cold normal. And they have antibodies. And then, you know, the question of course that they ask is, well, okay, I've got these antibodies, you know, could I possibly have symptoms related to my thyroid? And that's when the answer oftentimes is no. Um, now, you know, of course, with the caveat that numbers are not the end-all, be-all all the time. Mm-hmm. And if I check somebody's number and it looks stone-cold normal today, it's possible that if I check it again, it may not look as good. So sometimes people with sort of very borderline cases, you know, could get falsely reassured that they're normal if they just happen to be tested on a good day. But I would say that you know, if someone is that borderline, the chance that they have really significant symptoms that are due to hypothyroidism, those chances start to go down. They're not zero, but they, they certainly start to go down. Right. So we've, we're, you know, sort of just implicitly talking about two ways that you can diagnose this Hashimoto's. One is looking for the antibodies. I assume there's different antibodies that you test for for Graves' disease. What is that? What are those called? Because mine are TPO. Yeah. Uh, Right. Yeah. For Graves, there's a couple of different antibodies that people check. Uh, One is called thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins, which is Mm -hmm. just easier to say TSI. And then um, some people check uh, 
uh, thyrotropin hormone, uh, uh, sorry, thyrotropin receptor antibodies. And uh, it's just different, uh, slightly different tests, slightly different sensitivities and specificities as far as what they mean, you know, and whether they're likely to be positive if someone actually has the disease, that kind of stuff. Right. And then the the other one we've been talking about is TSH. And probably a lot of people know that from when they go for their general physical and they'll get a TSH. And so it, it, that's thyroid stimulating hormone, correct? Correct. TSH? And in right. your view, what what do you think is sort of the normal range? I guess it depends lab per lab, right? But there's one of the things you hear out there on the internet, right, is oh, you know, what's the normal range and are they really misleading us as to what the normal range should be? They make the upper end of it too high and so then we have this untreated hypothyroidism. This is the thing that you hear. Just, we can discuss a little bit about that and what makes people do that later, but what is the range that you look for in terms of making people look good on paper? Sure. Uh, so that is not nearly as controversial as the internet would have us believe. Okay. Uh, I would say that there's a, there's a few points I would make with the reference range. One is that depending on the lab, it's going to be somewhere in the range of 0.4 to 4.0. And okay. just making clear that as the TSH goes up, it means that the thyroid hormone level is going down. So the TSH is moving in the opposite direction of the thyroid hormone level. So, Correct. So the higher um, it is, the more likely that your body is not producing enough thyroid hormone. Correct. So right. if I am seeing somebody who has a question of whether they're hypothyroid and their TSH is, somewhere in that upper half of the normal range, you know, like maybe three to four or something like that. And they have a bunch of symptoms that sound like they could be hypothyroid symptoms. Mm -hmm. I will usually test the TPO antibodies that you referenced okay. before, which are the ones that indicate the presence of Hashimoto's. I will test those. And if they are positive, it lends a little bit more credibility to the possibility at least that, the symptoms could be thyroid symptoms because so, the, the person's TSH is climbing within the quote normal range. They've right. got antibodies. We know that if you check that TSH on multiple different days, you know, some days it's going to be 3.2, some days it's going to mm -hmm. be 4.3, you know, so um, it's, it's certainly possible that somebody is flirting with developing hypothyroidism and might be symptomatic. So if the antibodies are positive, then I think that even though the TSH is, quote, normal in the upper part of the range, uh, it might not really be, the, or the person might not really be truly normal, and they might need to be treated, and, and that's reasonable. But if the same person comes in with a TSH between 3 and 4, and the antibodies are negative, mm -hmm. it makes it much less likely that the thyroid is really the answer here. And again, it's not sure. impossible, uh, but it's just, it's a lot less likely. And then when people are actually on treatment chronically, there's, you know, a lot of talk about, you know, where should the TSH be? And, you know, the answer really is the TSH should be wherever the person feels best, you know, as long as it's pretty much within the normal range, because I have people who feel better when their TSH is low normal. I have people who feel better when their TSH is high normal. And I really don't care where, the TSH is within the normal range. If someone just tells me, I feel, I feel best with it here, um, you know, whether 
they really do feel best because the TSH is there or they feel best for other circumstances. I don't really care if they attach that much significance to the number. I'm happy to try to target it for, you know, for where they want it. Uh, but the, the idea that everyone needs to be treated to a TSH that's between uh, the lower limit of normal and like two or two and a half is, um, is something that's been studied. And it's, it's been, well, the, I would say the studies are conflicting on that, but um, just real quickly, there was uh, one or maybe two that I remember, two studies I remember that were pretty elegant where they basically took people who were on thyroid hormone and they divided them up into three groups. And they, uh, they essentially left one group alone. And then they took one group and they decreased their thyroid hormone dose a tiny bit to allow their TSH to come up to high normal. And then the last group, they increased their thyroid hormone a little bit to allow their TSH to come down to the lower end of normal. And they had done, you know, quality of life questionnaires, symptom questionnaires, all that kind of stuff. And they essentially found that there was no difference within each group before and after the treatment adjustment. And there was no difference across groups as far as how they all felt. So it was, it was pretty good evidence that, you know, at least in those studies, people really couldn't tell uh, where their TSH was, you know, within the range, you know, they felt the same. Uh, but, you know, on a more individual basis, you know, when people come into my office, I have people who swear that, you know, if their TSH goes above 1.5, they feel like death. And I am happy to keep their TSH less than 1.5. doesn't really matter. There's no danger to keeping it less than 1.5 as long as it's within the normal range. Hello? 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 I do not know if... You can hear me, but I cannot hear you. I am going to dial back in. Okay, HD. I am back here. Right. And we have an hour, so everything should be fine, I hope. And I've cut off the stream on Facebook and all that stupid stuff that might. I don't think it should have been the cause at all because I've had no problem doing it before. But anyway, um, so here we are. So we talked about you know, imaging is another mode of diagnosis. And unfortunately I did have to cut that part because otherwise I couldn't get back here to you. So we've been spending way too much time on thyroid because of blog talk disconnecting me and because of my personal interest. I only have one more question on thyroid and um, it probably is of general interest. My doctor had said that there is a difference. If you're going to treat somebody with thyroid hormone, that there would be a difference between taking the brand name, and a generic that the pharmacy will give you in terms of how it absorbs and how your body reacts to it. Is that true in any way? The main issue between brand and generic is that when you take a generic version of thyroid hormone, levothyroxine, the pharmacy may give you a generic from different companies, different months, so that even if your dose doesn't change, let's say you're just on you know, 75 micrograms and you get uh, your pill from company A one month and then you get it from company B the next month because your pharmacy is contracted with a different manufacturer, mm -hmm. those 75 microgram tablets from company A and company B may not be totally equivalent to each other because the dose standardization across companies is not perfect. Okay. So that's 
where the issue comes in for some people. Some people really don't feel it, and, you know, a little bit of difference here and there, and they're fine. It's no big deal. Um, but other people feel it a lot. So we, um, you know, we try to get people on brand name, but the, uh, the, the brand is not really necessarily superior in any way to the generic. It's just that, you know, you're going to be getting, you know, let's say it's Lavoxel or Synthroid. Before, you know. yeah. yeah, you're getting the same thing every month for sure. Okay, okay. And then one thing that we had talked about before, and I'm, I, I think basically people now should just, if they want are interested in more in this issue, they should go to your blog because you've got so many different things. Like I said, the low-dose naltrexone, you know, should you take it for Hashimoto's? No. Um, should you take a combination of T3 and T4 supplement because it's, quote, natural? No, unless you're somebody, very rare person who needs it, et cetera. Um, a couple things that are also of interest is, uh, you know, for instance, about your other part of your practice. The other part of your practice is serving transgender patients. And I don't myself have any real view of, you know, transgender or gender dysphoria. But in my social media feeds, I have seen people questioning the, you know, is there an actual condition at play here? So here's a question for you. In your view, what is the strongest evidence that gender dysphoria is a real condition? What have you seen? Uh, sure. Uh, so I will start out by saying very strongly it is a condition. Um, and uh, I will also say very strongly that it's not controversial as to whether it's a condition. Uh, it is a condition. But, um, you know, I, I think that if people want to go to original literature, probably the best place to go would be to the 2017 Endocrine Society updated transgender guidelines. And those are actually available free of charge. Uh, if they just Google Endocrine Society uh, transgender 2017, those guidelines will pop up. And um, within that document, it references a lot of the original literature on which mm. the guidelines are based, uh, which will include some of the literature that talks about uh, research with gender dysphoria, but, uh, you know, speaking from seeing a lot of folks with gender dysphoria, uh, it is really amazing how long people can have this persistent distress. You know, I mean, people sometimes come see me when they're, you know, 50, 60 years old. And by this point, they've had many decades of real psychologic distress that is directly related to their feeling of an incongruence with their uh, gender designated at birth. And right. they just have this persistent sense, I should be the opposite gender. Well, sometimes people feel uh, sort of in between or non-binary, whatever you want to call it, but um, let's just make it simple for the purpose of this discussion and talk about females who want to be males or males who want to be females. And, you know, so if we're talking about a, a person who's a transgender and really feels like they need to be the opposite gender and they really want to be rid of all of their secondary sexual characteristics from their gender from birth. Um, and then when you treat these people, that all gets dramatically better, if not completely resolved. Uh, it's, you know, I, I don't, I would not know what else to call that. So, so uh, the way that you've seen it is from the standpoint of giving them the treatment that would be indicated 
if this was really their problem and you see the problems that they have go away through this treatment and uh, over a course of time, right? Right, correct. So, you know, as far as making the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, I mean, although people do sometimes come to me first before ever talking to a therapist, mm-hmm. um, most of the time people have been talking to a therapist or at least have met with a therapist and, um, you know, have been talking about this for for years or um, sometimes a shorter amount of time, but they've been exploring the issue because, you know, some, a lot of times when, when kids have it, I mean, granted, I don't treat kids, but. That was going to be my kids, question because there's controversy about that. So you don't treat kids. I do not. Uh, so I'm really not trained to treat kids, but I go, I go down to um, about 16 years old and any less than that starts to get into issues of whether we need to suppress puberty. And that actually is, um, a little controversial and has been addressed in the new guidelines as far as whether very young kids who appear to have gender dysphoria should have puberty suppressed and start Mm -hmm. treatment with the opposite sex hormone before they even go through puberty because, you know, the the result, physically speaking, is great when they do that. Right. Um, And the result may not be as good if they wait till till puberty starts. But in any case, um, you know, when kids have it, it doesn't always persist into adulthood. So there is some fluidity there um, mm. where, you know, they, they may have some questions, but kids, you know, again, I'm, I'm speaking from less than a position of extreme authority here, but, but kids don't always know how to uh, couch this in their minds, you know, as far as what they're feeling, because what I do have is I have people come to me who are, you know, 18, 19, 20, and, and they say, yeah, you know, I've been feeling this way for a long time. But when I was a kid, I really, I just didn't know if there was a name for it, you know. Mm. And they're like, yeah, okay, I like to play with, let's say we're talking about someone who comes in as a, as a chromosomal female. And that person may say, you know, I always like to play with boys' toys. And I was more of a tomboy and identified more boy things. Um, mm-hmm. But I just, I, I didn't know what that was. And then, you know, and then, but this this feeling of, incredible distress and, and uh, the depression and anxiety and all the things that kind of go along with that, um, those, those persist for a long time until people start to transition. Sure. But then, you know, the, the, for me, the concern would be that if you expose kids to this possibility, they might be suggestible. So, you would want to not necessarily expose kids. You would want kids to sort of manifest who they are. And then only if it seems apparent, would you want to start exploring whether kids, but I, I understand your, you know, your point that if you knew that a kid had this and you knew that you could suppress puberty and give them a much better result that was going to make them happier for their life, then you would want to do it. But at the same time, you wouldn't want to interfere if like you say it's fluid and it was going to change on its own later anyway, right. naturally. And, oh gosh. And and that is where the, where the current guidelines, they, the current guidelines do come down on the side of generally not suppressing puberty, waiting till there's basically the first sign or n- not starting before puberty has begun. Basically they're saying, okay. you know, wait till the first signs of puberty start. And if, and if, you know, they're still pretty convinced that they need to move forward with this, um, you know, then consider, um, you know, uh, moving on to treatment from there, but not necessarily before there are any signs of purity. But I, I would push back a little bit on the idea of suggestibility because um, I, I, don't, I don't think that 
someone who, or, you know, a child who is, um, and this is just my, this is my belief based on nothing other than my belief, but okay. I, I don't think, I don't think that uh, a child who, uh, who has these, these deep feelings of uh, gender incongruence or dysphoria and, and really feels like there's, there's some, or sorry, uh, a child who doesn't have those feelings uh, or has feelings that could be confused for those feelings. I don't know that being exposed to the idea that it's possible is going to be something that we have to worry is going to, you know, push them into something that they never would have done otherwise. I just, uh, okay. I, I don't, I don't, I don't see that, but you know, whether that could happen, I don't know, but I, I just, I think that it's, um, it's something I was thinking, that especially especially you, if it's a fluid thing, right? If, if it's a fluid thing, that was the thought. Are we, yeah. you know, this is one of these things where you and I aren't going to settle that right now. So let me just ask one more quick hmm. medical question. I want to get into the methodology more. So okay. the one last the one last question is about sex hormones, and it's just very general because I know this is not a focus of your practice. Just sex hormones for normal. Uh, people who aren't transgender. There is one post on your blog under the category of sex hormones and people who are interested, I suggest they go look at it. It talks about those clinics that try to get men addicted to testosterone and stuff. So that's good. But here's the question. What's your overall view of replacing hormones as you age? And, you know, I could say, and this is probably too cutesy or whatever, that you have age dysphoria, that you don't like the effects of age on your body, one of them that we've heard about is that the various sex hormones decline as we age. And we think maybe if we replace them that we could feel better. What's your view on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> just, just real quick, the, the age dysphoria. Yeah. I, I think that most of the people who are kind of into this anti-aging medicine field uh, as far as patients go are more in the category of worried well um, I, I wouldn't say that that this is you know dysphoria that gives them really horrible distress and they feel like they absolutely need to be young again and, right. and until that we can make make them young they're never going to feel well. So I, I think it's more you know there there are people who are who are interested in in optimizing their health and I don't really have a problem with health optimization but what I do have a problem with is this idea that. Uh, we should be attempting to replace everybody's hormones to the level of a healthy 25-year-old because for many different hormones in the body, uh, either they go down for a reason or we think they might go down for a reason over time. It may be protective. uh, And if we start giving people Mm. heroic doses of name your hormone as they age to say, well, this will be, uh, you know, make it look like you're 25 again, um, you know, there may be organs that in the body that just don't like those levels of hormones. And um, so I, I don't, I don't think that we should be attempting to um, uh, attempting to treat people in a, in a way of, or in that context of anti-aging. I think we need to be really, really careful about that. I mean, if people want to increase their health span, so their healthy lifespan, there are so many things that they can do, but that doesn't necessarily involve taking a bunch of stuff. And now, of course, if people truly have a disorder, you know, like really abnormally low testosterone uh, for, for a guy, uh, you know, yeah, it may be quite reasonable to give it to him. Or a woman who's going through menopause and having horrendous hot flashes and other symptoms, 
may be very reasonable to give her hormone replacement, but um, not not in, in not with a goal to kind of make people 25 again. Right, right. Okay, well, that's a reasonable and, and a balanced view. So you're not completely against it in terms of making people feel better and healthier, but it's not the same thing, obviously. You're not going to make yourself into a younger person. That's reasonable. So let's get into why smart people are stupid about their health. There's this whole post that you have. And in the post on your blog, again, the blog is Hormones Demystified. I highly recommend it to everybody. And at the beginning of the first part of this podcast, we had the disclaimer, you're not having this doctor-patient relationship with HD, but he's got a lot of information there. Same disclaimer there. Check it out. Um, In this post about why smart people are stupid about their health, you first, you break it up into two things. First, you talk about three concepts that affect human beings' decision-making processes. And I'll just run through them. And really, you know, it's where I've got something to say that we're probably going to stop and have a discussion. You say intelligence breeds hubris. Yes, sure. You know, if you're a smart person, and I'm going to be presumptuous and say I'm kind of smart, but you're smart, but you also fail to take into account that your doctor has spent years studying something you haven't. That's how I understand that first uh, concept. Would that be a fair summary? Yeah, sure. Okay. And then intelligent people, they cannot remain aware of their inbuilt cognitive biases. What I saw that you were looking at here is that uh, the the example that you gave is the post hoc fallacy. So I ate a certain food that I rarely eat and then suddenly all these things start happening. It must have been because of that food. And then, of course, there's not this causation, but people get fixated on it, and then they ignore all the evidence to the contrary and everything else. So there's cognitive biases that we, as smarter people, might be more uh, you know, tempted to ignore, and that we also might be defensive, that we're not going to admit and own our mistakes, and then we'd be doomed to repeat them. So th- those sort of three general things then... I guess, color how we interact with the field of medicine. And that's where you've got the 10 reasons, the 10 reasons that we are stupid about our health, right? Is that how you look at it? Yes. Okay. So first thing, and we talked about this a little bit with the overdiagnosis of thyroid, the, the idea that one magical thing can cure all our problems. You say that people employ magical thinking and, um, we, you know, we want basically the one solution to our problem. Uh, is, is, is that kind of how you see that factor there that we think, okay, well, you know, it's possible that this one pill that I take, this one supplement from Amazon is going to be the cure to everything that ails me? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, because I, I really do think after seeing, you know, thousands of patients that, People really want a very simple, easy solution to whatever's going on, and they they often think that there's going to be that that one thing. They're looking for that magic bullet, and then you know they're finally going to feel better again. And uh, I, I just don't see that people are really receptive to the, you know the idea that their sleep is just terrible, you know, quality mm-hmm. and quantity and their, their stress management is non-existent. 
and, right. you know, their diet is problematic. And, you know, it's kind of like I, I get the, the comment all the time. It's like, well, yeah, but I've been sleeping, you know, four hours a night for years. And it's like, well, okay, but you've, you've built up a debt that your body needs to repay. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, 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 but, but what else? And it's kind of like, well, I don't want to deal with that. So what else you got? I'm like, well, no, you, you've got to deal with that. No, exactly, exactly. And actually what we're doing right now is we're sort of combining the first three reasons into one little bit of discussion because you've got – First is employ, that people employ magical thinking that will accept a lot of things as possible. And the way that you phrased it is you say, well, yes, anything is possible, but not everything is likely. I would say not anything is possible, that you actually need to have some evidence for something to be possible. And people are out there accepting and you know saying that things are possible without any evidence at all. And that, that's part of what we'll get in with the arbitrary. But uh, desire to believe is powerful, that this is a corollary. We want to believe that the thing will work. And like you say, we're wired to seek out first the simplest explanation, but if the simple one is really hard, like fix your sleep um, or, you know, fix these other factors in, re- in your life that we know affect health, that we're going to seek the easy one, the easy one being the pill. Um, so that those three sort of in that discussion that we just had a bias for things to be quote natural. We talked a little bit about that with the thyroid stuff. Um, And I've seen this everywhere in in the community, of course, in the Hashimoto's discussions, let's have the natural desiccated pig supplement versus not. Um, I mean, for my approach, I say, yeah, if you can avoid the invasive stuff, avoid you know avoid taking antibiotics if you can. But if you need it, you need it. You see people resistant, huh? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I I have people who will literally come in with a giant shopping bag full of supplements, and you know when I kind of look askance, like you know, hey, you're on a you're on a bunch of meds here. And they're like, no, these are these are all natural. These are these are just supplements. And they don't really get that, number one, we don't really know what's in the supplements because the supplement industry is relatively unregulated. And then number two, you know, whatever is in there needs to be detoxified by the liver and ultimately can build up to toxic levels in the blood or otherwise be Mm -hmm. a problem. So, you know, natural doesn't mean safe. And I I think that people do equate natural with safe. uh, And that's, um, that's, a big problem. I'm probably, uh, you would say, an over-consumer of supplements, and I won't say about that right now because I don't want to be scolded. Um, <laughs> number five is, uh, I was never like this before syndrome. I loved your discussion of that. People, go read this post. Again, this post is called Why Smart People Are Stupid About Their Health at Hormones Demystified. You copped to some of this uh, in your own sort of health journey, realizing that requires more over time to fitness. What I would put in from a philosophy standpoint, that health is a value that you have to act to gain and also keep. So once you are this, you know, star athlete or whatever, yeah, you have to maintain over time and people don't realize that. Uh, you say non-specific constellations of symptoms defy diagnosis. Yeah, it's, it's just too hard to figure out. There's no one thing that, that can explain all those things and probably you have to take care of sleep, stress, workouts, diet, all the basics before you can even yeah. 
get a diagnosis. Yeah, and that's, that's, the, that's the thing is that it, they defy the nonspecific symptoms that people come in with. They do defy a, you know, simple one-size-fits-all diagnosis of, you know, but just go ahead and take this, you'll be fine. Um, but they, they don't really defy diagnosis in that there are so many things we know that are wrong with that person's lifestyle that could be addressed, but they, they defy a, a diagnosis that's going to be acceptable to the person. I guess I should have probably mm. said it that way. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So that, that's a, that's a huge issue. And that's where, you know, we also kind of get into this um, tug of war between, uh, you know, conventional medicine and the fringe medicine practitioners who seem to have kind of co-opted lifestyle advice as their field. Um, right. And I, I think that we should be delivering that advice, but uh, it's a, it's a huge problem because we're not necessarily all educated about the, the right advice. You know, I mean, I, I still see people being advised to eat certain ways that are not going to be helpful. And, you know, a lot of these health mm-hmm. myths, um, they just persist because doctors don't necessarily know that much better than anybody else because we don't get the training that we need for sleep and diet and exercise in uh, in school. So I, I think that there's a there's a raised awareness of it now. I hope that medical schools are actually devoting some more bandwidth to it. But for all the doctors who are out there, you know, we we actually need to be devoting more continuing medical education to you know evidence based lifestyle stuff, and it it just seems like such soft science, I think, that, you know, it'll, it probably gets overlooked by a lot of specialists who are, you know, really focused on their field, but um, it's, it's really important. I, I just don't think there are that many doctors who know, you know, what's great exercise, you know, what, what right. is amazing exercise for, for losing weight or building muscle or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. what, what's the best way to eat? You know, I don't think they know. Um, no, exactly. So, and and the other thing, do do doctors even have time to deliver that sort of general mm, lifestyle advice yeah. in today's so that's medical my next field? Point. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's that's my next point. We don't have that time. So until the, handouts um, or something. I was thinking you could hand you know give handouts in your office or something. Yeah, you know it's uh, it's tough because we hear all the time that you know if we tell a patient something you know, make it, make it a point to tell them something like, okay, Hey, listen, we really need to talk about your diet. Like this is really important that they're going to listen. But, you know, if we work in all these health systems, you've probably seen in your area too, have probably been consolidating. And so now, you know, almost everybody works for a large health system and is having the screws put to them as far as uh, finishing the visits as quickly as possible. So they can churn Mm -hmm. through more patients and generate more money. Mm -hmm. And, um, that is not conducive to having these conversations. So sure. I feel like I know what we need to do. Um, and, and if we were edu- even if we were educated to do it, we would need somebody to say, you know what, this is important and we're going to construct your schedule so that we're going to give you the time you need to talk to people about these things. But that's, that's a huge issue that I'm obviously not going to solve here. Yeah, no, we, we can talk a little bit about it in the little bit of advice I have on the towards the end here so then 
uh, another factor is you say people just, oh, wait, no, the manufacturer controversy on the Internet, of course. Um, That was your number seven factor. There is too much manufacturer controversy on the Internet. Earlier we referred to one thing where you said, hey, the controversy really isn't as much as people think there is about this, maybe about the ranges of thyroid, you know, TSH or something. But that's true in every field that there's just too much manufacturer controversy out there. And, you know, the way that I would phrase it to you is, yeah, well, just because people disagree about something doesn't mean that there isn't a right answer. And it doesn't mean that conventional medicine that doesn't provide the right answer. You know, everybody thinks, well, just because there's controversy, therefore we have to go seek alternative medicine. And that's what you've seen people do, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, this, and uh, I'll, I'll try to give you my well. take on why, you know, why people do that in a, a second, why I think people might do that. Uh, people distrust big pharma, and my diagnosis of this in a certain way is um, the problem that we have generally of cronyism. So a lot of people would see that big pharma is sort of in bed with government. People distrust big corporations and government and You know, the FDA is, if any pharmaceutical companies are surviving under the FDA, they must be corrupt in some way. Or There could be a little bit of a cross-pollination, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But, I mean, your your take on Big Pharma is, yeah, sometimes you've found the pharmaceutical representatives to be kind of slimy, but a lot of times you find that they, you know, they're interested in helping people just like you are, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, they obviously they they have a bias. They want to make sales. I mean, I get it, but um, you know, sometimes they're actually a useful resource, and especially when they're actually helping the patients get, you know, for example, meds or devices that um, are hung up uh, with their insurance company or whatever's going on, or they'll you know they'll get the patient a supply of something to carry them over till they can. Uh, uh, you know, get something straightened out with their insurance company. But, I mean, they, they really do seem to get satisfaction from helping people. And I don't think uh, the fact that they want to make money, uh, you know, makes that uh, that message any worse, you know. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that in general, you know, with with all the drugs that we have, you know, they're, they're developed uh, not – with the, I don't believe that they're developed with the intent to make money. Now, of course, I know they want to make money, and um, but I, I think that the the drive to develop a lot of drugs is because we have a lot of conditions that you know we need to figure out treatments for. Now, of course, if we're going to talk about the Me Too drugs, you know, that are just a, a slightly different isomer of some other drug that's already out there that does a perfectly good job, yeah, right. that's just the, the grab for more money. Uh, so that when their patent on the first drug expires, they can just slide in there with the other one and convince people that they need to take it. And that that's that's BS. I uh, I agree with people who take issue with that. But I mean, the the rest of what the pharmaceutical industry is doing is is developing drugs to to deal with very significant problems that we have. So I don't sure. think we should be throwing the baby out with the bathwater on that one. No, exactly. Now I'm going to skip quickly over the last two factors, and then we get into the the substance of of stuff that I think we can exchange on. So. Um, you say people believe that being proactive is always best. So, you know, they've got a thyroid cancer and um, maybe it's 
coming, you know, it's recurring. And so they want to just go in right away and cut it out and stuff. And you're saying, no, look, you have to, you know, this cancer is a slow growing thing and you have to wait for a while so that if somebody goes in again, they can actually see what they're doing and people have a hard time waiting. I can understand that in a way you'd say, okay, cancer, we, you know, it's, it's very frightening and you would want to just do something, but you're saying that they don't always know that the best thing to do is wait so that when you do the treatment, it's actually going to be effective. And then you say over-testing leads to bad decisions. And in particular, if you're going to go in and try to do a biopsy of something, you list horrible things that can happen if you do a biopsy and, and something goes wrong. So all of these, I would agree, say, okay, yeah, these are all things that errors that people are susceptible to making and probably the types of errors, you know, the types of, um, you know, decision-making processes that they employ, the top three things that you talked about, those probably affect that as well. But overall, you say, okay, you have to, as a patient, be aware of your ingrained biases, and that will help you avoid these types of errors that you've seen patients make in the practice. But let me start to take issue with one thing that you talk about in your wrap-up section of this post. You say less intelligent people are often more likely to put their complete trust in you that, and just ask you what they think they should do. Now, by the way, what I do is I pummel my doctor with a million questions, and then I say, mm-hmm. what do you think I should do? So I still do that, I ask, but I do the yeah. pummeling with the questions too. Um, and off, you know, it, it makes a difference to me, of course, what the doctor says. So I try to be balanced about this. But in general, just from somebody who's studied logic and, and logical fallacies, the thing that I always taught was that it would always be bad to appeal to authority, to say, well, because an authority said it, therefore it's true. And that would be also true of experts. But of course, with experts, if we're going to apply this fallacy, or if we're going to try to avoid this fallacy, we have to do something different. And the thing that I was taught is, you know, you go to a doctor and you would ask for an explanation of what your condition is and what the treatment that the doctor recommends. And you would listen and within the best of your ability, make sure that it makes sense to you that the explanation is logically consistent within itself. But at the same time, and this is the piece that I think your complaints come from at the same time people need to realize that they don't have a medical education and that you cannot you know attain the degree of knowledge that an expert like UHD has in the space of a doctor visit with a short explanation about a condition and I think that's where the kind of the tug of war is Um, so I don't believe that somebody should just come in and say hey give me tests and what do you think I should do? Don't bother giving me any explanation. I think there's some kind of back and forth and that the person should be critical and the person should always think for themselves and not just accept, you know, as good as you are, HD, not accept what you say simply because you say it. But at the same time, I yeah, do no, think we, that you have a problem. You know, you, you are seeing a real problem as well. In the office. Yeah, no, you and I are actually in agreement on pretty much everything you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what, by making that point that sometimes my less, maybe not even less intelligent, but less sophisticated would, might be a more accurate word. Um, some of my less sophisticated patients um, may not really know what to ask as much. So I give 
everyone, whether they are smart or not smart, sophisticated or not, um, I give them all the same talk, uh, you know, as far as when I'm explaining things. And I, mm-hmm. I will, you know, bring things to a level as far as, you know, the, the terms I use so that, you know, pretty much everyone can follow what I'm saying. So I'll take people through step by step exactly what I think is going on and what I think they should do. And I do want people to question me and have it make sense for them. I don't want them to just say, you know, okay. I mean, well, if they do say, okay, great, you know, we'll just go ahead and do that, then that's that's fine. But I want them to be comfortable with it, whether they're smart or not. And they need to be comfortable with everything. So if that takes a lot of questions to get them to that comfort level, then that's awesome. And I'm always happy to answer questions and even address the stuff that people have read um, as long as they're willing to listen to my answers. Um, I think the the place where this breaks down is when, you know, people come in with their questions and pepper me with all the questions and I give them all the answers and kind of explain why what they've read maybe isn't correct. And they still say, okay, well, you know, I'm just, I'm not comfortable with this. And okay, well then, you know, I guess we're going to have to agree to disagree and there's not that much that I can do for you. Uh, right. and, and it's those those people, I think, who are doing themselves a disservice because they really, they're like, you know what, I read this on Google and I believe it more than I believe you. And, you know, like, I know that this Fosamax you want to give me for my bones is going to shred my bones and make me have fractures. I just know it. And, um, okay, well, like, I guess we're done here. I got nothing right. else for you. Right. No, and, and that's the thing. So if people are going to go by their emotions and if they're willing to accept what is known as the arbitrary, and that's where we've had some email discussion back and forth in, uh, you know, the philosophy that I have, you know, sort of adhered to, which is Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand, we talk about the difference between the arbitrary and the possible and the probable and the certain that there's this continuum and a number of people are willing to, you know, bet their whole health on something that is completely arbitrary. And by that, I mean something for which someone has not provided any real evidence. And you talked earlier about evidence-based health advice. And I'm glad you were saying that, you know, you always want to look at something for which there is evidence provided that this thing is going to help you. And people have been more and more likely to accept things that they read on the internet, things for which there is no evidence at all. And it's particularly insulting. I imagine for you that they're going to take this arbitrary assertion by somebody on the internet and act on it as opposed to the advice that you give them. That's, that's pretty horrific. Um, in, In terms of you being able to take the time to give, explanations that are satisfying for example to somebody like me who would really pummel you with the questions uh, maybe you're not able to do that anymore and i know on your blog you've talked about it that it's the profit motive of these bigger health conglomerates and things like that the thing that i'll tell you and we're you know you and i'll disagree because i know you're sort of more liberal and i'm obviously you know fiscally more conservative and I've seen it in the financial services industry, which is very heavily regulated. In the financial services industry, only the biggest can survive the regulatory burden and still make a profit and keep going. And I think the reason that in medicine you are seeing a focus 
of these organizations more and more in profits is that it's harder and harder to make a profit in an industry that is more regulated by government. And the more regulation and centralization we see, the more that that's going to happen. At least that's my theory. And, you know, to me, it's happening at this horrible time uh, in, in terms of the fact that you know, like you were saying, there's all these different conditions and there's a lot of wonderful new drugs and treatments for those conditions. And being able to understand how good these are, it might be a fairly complex matter. So at the time where medicine is still making quite a bit of progress, I mean, you need, you know, read all the time, great news about promising new treatments for XYZ. At that same time, our medical industry is being cramped so that someone like you, you have very little time to explain all this wonderful new stuff to a patient. So what do they do? They go out on the internet to try to get their information. Yeah. You know, and um, I, I, I think we actually would agree about a few things when it comes to government and healthcare, although maybe not um, when it comes to socialized medicine, I've heard you talk about that before, Mm -hmm. but uh, I, I do think that a lot of the regulation has caused a tremendous number of headaches because one of the reasons why we have less time, I mean, it's not just our organizations on a local level saying, okay, you you need to crank out more patients, but it's all this extra non-value added work that we have to do. For example, um, there's something called meaningful, or it used to be called meaningful use. I think it's been rolled into some other term now, government acronym, but, uh, you know, had to do with electronic medical records and all that. So mm-hmm. there are all these kind of check boxes and clicks and other things that we need to, to do within the context of a visit that really do add time to that visit. And there are things that the medical assistant needs to do in the room um, in order to, uh, to help the organization qualify for this five-star quality stuff through the government as far as rechecking blood pressures and asking about depression screens and, you know, all these things that on the surface sound like they might be helpful, but have never actually been shown to improve anybody's health. Um, mm. that they, they have to do all these things. And that, that is part of regulations um, that were set into place by the government. So, so that is not good. And that, that contributes to the pain too. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I do think that one of the largest, contributing factors is um, the insurance companies and the insurance companies really have caused us uh, a lot of headaches with. Sure. And um, having, I would say, you know, you know it, we could, we could have a debate about this part all day. So we'll just, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say, I would say that they're subject to the same pressure that only the biggest can survive and that they're under increasing pressure and not able, you know, they, they've been mandated to take people with pre-existing conditions and all the different things. They're under a lot of pressures as well. And I think that you are seeing, you know, some of that certainly are there going to be unscrupulous insurance companies and people who are focused more on money than actually delivering. There is that, but I think it's just exacerbated. So that's one factor. And to me, I would say it's, you know, government involvement, you'd say, well, it's because they're more concerned with the profit motive and they're a business and they don't really care about medicine. Uh, you know, why are we buying so-called comprehensive health insurance as opposed to just catastrophic and not having people just pay out of their pockets the way they used to? There, you know, there's a whole lot of, I think, side effects of government intervention in the 
health insurance industry. I don't even call it health insurance anymore. I, I call it prepaid vouchers for health care that you may or may not get. That's because it's not even re- it's not really yeah. insurance anymore, you know. So that that's kind of and that we could have that other discussion another day. Um, in in terms of um other things that are making people seek quackery, as you like to call it, out there on the internet, that go out, you know, just go out there and look for information and cling on to the arbitrary and, you know, say that that's the magic treatment for you. Um, this lack of integration in medicine. So you talked about the fact that in medical school you don't get education on health, fitness, you know, diet and things like that. And probably people sense that, well, I'm going to this guy for this one part of my body and this other guy for that other part. And there's nobody who seems to put it all together in a way that makes sense to me. So there could Mm -hmm. be a little bit of that going on. That's part of what might explain people's reticence. Sure, because they they use the term holistic and holistic sounds awesome. Right. So I want, I want someone to look at me holistically. Well, you know, hell yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. And then can you have holistic without quackery is the, you know, and and today it seems that it's very hard to get that Uh, in the the culture. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, you said it's hard to get that. Oh yeah. It's harder to get Uh, that today. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, it is. I mean, I think, you know, because the, the specialists were, you know, were all honed in on our narrow area of expertise. And granted, my area is a little bit broader because the endocrine system kind of touches on a lot of different things in the body. But uh, the PCPs, the primary care docs, are just getting crushed. And um, they they just have so many responsibilities that um, people, and you know that with people, shouldering a greater burden of their healthcare costs with these high deductible health plans. Um, They want their 15 issues addressed at that visit. And if that visit is 15 minutes to try to think that there's going to be a holistic approach to that person and, you know, Oh, okay. Well, you've got all these things that you really need addressed that are very specific, but let's back up for a minute and talk about your stress management and whether you're meditating and Oh, by the way, your sleep and you know, that, that stuff just doesn't, necessarily happen. So the, I think the PCPs are like firefighters at this point, they're just putting out, you know, the little fire here. Oh, your knee. Okay. We're going to, we're going to adjust your knee today. Your rotator cuff's messed up. Oh, you've got bronchitis, you know, but they don't have time for all this other stuff. And if you sit down with a quote, alternative medicine practitioner um, who maybe has a bit more time and is doing a cash pay business uh, you know, that, I'm sure it makes people feel much more heard because they're, they're really getting a deep dive, you know, whether they're getting a, uh, an educated deep dive is, is where I sort of come in and have opinions, but they are getting a deeper dive and they're maybe feeling more listened to than with their regular docs. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure some provide better advice and, and, you know, every, you know, diagnosis and everything than, than others. And, it, you know that, but then the, are people willing to accept the arbitrary from them? And we we should talk about the arbitrary in a second. Let me give you a couple other things just to think about that might be contributing to this. You know, why are smart people, um, you know, stupid about their health? What is affecting this? In in the culture in general, there's been sort of a skepticism. You know that it's just cool to be skeptical all the time. So that might be affecting it. 
Um, there's even been quite a bit of nihilism in the culture too. I don't know if if there's that. Uh, and then, at least in my circles, right? Because again, there's a lot of people like me who are philosophically opposed to government being involved in the healthcare industry, and a lot of Americans in general are, you know, very sort of distrustful of government. We believe that we have the right to the pursuit of happiness, that the people who work in Washington, D.C. are our servants, you know, not our masters, et cetera. And perhaps subconsciously people are starting to understand in the United States that medicine is slowly becoming, in effect, a branch of government or part of government. And, uh, you know, the, this show is called Don't Let It Go Unheard. And it is named after an essay by Ayn Rand called Don't Let It Go. And in that essay, she talks about the American sense of life. And the American sense of life is just sort of this subconscious way that Americans uniquely come at the world. And she describes different facets of it, and she contrasts it with Europeans. And one of the facets is that Americans are always going to be sort of resistant to authority, that Americans believe, you know, basically they own themselves and they should always be able to take charge of themselves and their destiny. And I wonder if in Americans, you know, to the sense that this sense of life is still there, and, and my belief is that this American sense of life is eroding in many people and in some people it's morphing into some of the worst that you see of Trump supporters, because I'm anti-Trump. I don't know if you know that. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that... It's mangled now, the American sense of life. But still, there is this healthy sort of resistance to government authority. We don't want to live under Orwellian 1984 and everything else. And if I start to see you as part of that, particularly when you have to enter everything into your little computer that goes into the database that gets reported to the government and everything else, then I might start to not trust you as much. Um, yeah, that's an interesting perspective on that. Um, I guess I look at it from, I mean, I, I actually, I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. I look at it from a little bit more of a concrete perspective, I guess, is, mm-hmm. um, well, first of all, I, I, a lot of the stuff that we have to do that patients, you know, see us looking at our screens, it's actually more to get stuff on the page that is necessary to get reimbursed by the insurance company. And I'm not going to get back into the whole thing again, but sure, sure. it's, it's really, it's, it's the insurance company's requirements to, to um, get reimbursement that give us most of all that time that, um, you know, we're spending not but, but looking part at our of Obamacare patient, was to create these records about us that are part of a certain database in order to check certain boxes and make sure that you're in compliance with Obamacare. Correct. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, it could, it could be that Uh, that is just folded into what your organization and the insurance companies require now. And so that's how it, um, I wouldn't say that. No, I mean, a a lot of what we do, you know, if we want to bill a certain level code, which gives us a certain amount of money, we have Mm -hmm. to justify that. And that's, that's purely based on the insurance companies. You know, if the insurance company does an audit and they check our note and we don't have all the little things in our note that we're supposed to have to justify that level of service, then they can um, deny payment for that. And that really doesn't have anything to do with the 
the government regulations. It's been that way for long before Obama was president. You know, anyway. So, but as far as people, um, you know, not trusting the us because they don't really trust the government to sort of extend their tendrils into healthcare too much. You know, for me, it's just more concrete. I just want to figure out a way to make the system sustainable for, um, you know, the cost stability, uh, sustainability, but also the sustainability of the having physicians who actually are um, not burned out and therefore able to, or presumably able to deliver decent care. And that's mm-hmm. where it's getting really scary because all this stuff, whether it's the government giving us heartburn or the insurance companies giving us heartburn, mm-hmm. whoever's giving us heartburn, patients, whatever, we are getting burned out. And it's, it's, it really is frightening. I don't think people truly get it. I mean, it's, it's almost, it, it's because it's happening right now and it's happening slowly. So they may not see it, but we're losing primary care docs as well as other types of docs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just dropping like flies because they're super burned out and they're, they're leaving their practices to go do something uh, that doesn't have as much of a burden, um, you know, whether it's in medicine or somewhere else. So right. the, there are so many things wrong with the system that, you know, obviously we could talk about for hours, but the end result is that we're, we're actually losing a lot of docs. And when you and I get, a few more years older and accumulate a few more diagnoses under our belt, um, (laughs) we're going to need all these docs that they're already dropping out of, um, of the workforce. So that, that's kind of the, the scary part for me. Right. No. And that is the ultimately scary part. And then the question is we have to figure out what is causing the factors that, put you and all these other well-meaning doctors under stress such that you feel like you're on the verge of quitting if they do one more horrible thing to you, which I wouldn't blame you at all because I believe you, you know, you've got the right to the pursuit of happiness and you should indeed have a, have a life where you are rewarded according to the value that you provide. So we could have the debate another time to, to figure it out. But so o- overall, though, when you talk about, you know, why smart people – are stupid about their health. The way that I see it is that they are failing to take into account that you have this education and this expertise and that it needs to be respected. And in some ways that is sort of the fault of the system. And I said, you know, there, in addition to the biases and things that you talked about, I talk about biases that might be, you know, coming from a cultural perspective and a distrust of authority, which, you know, is healthy in a certain extent, but not to this extent where you say, look, a doctor has spent years studying this thing you haven't. Sure, ask for an explanation, make sure it makes sense to you. But then that third prong, it's not, you know, appealing to authority if you go ahead and take a doctor's advice, even though you can't be 100% certain yourself because you don't have a medical degree. And I think that's where a smart person will even have more resistance about something sometimes. Um, then the problem mm-hmm. is, though, that like you're saying, what they grab onto is stuff out on the Internet for which there's almost no evidence. And, you know, how do we do that? As a Hashimoto's patient, there is just so much that is put out there as advice for us that I find it overwhelming and I've told you before that I sometimes feel that these gurus will 
give you some sort of protocol that you're supposed to follow and it's supplements and it's just an overwhelming amount of supplements and it's totally confusing about well which time of the day are you supposed to take this one versus that one and it's almost as if they're trying to set you up to fail so that when this doesn't mirror you know miraculously cure your Hashimoto's then you're the one to blame so I, I think it's quite an industry. Right. It's quite an industry. In, in your view, I mean, how long has this guru industry of Hashimoto's existed? Oh, gosh. I mean, I guess for as long as I've been in the medical field, you know, but I, I do think there's there's been a proliferation, I guess, because um, there's money to be made, you know. Uh, people love the the sensationalistic claims and of course, you know, when they're searching for answers, any sensationalistic claim looks very attractive. Um, but, yeah, it's it's an incredible field, which is, it, it it's kind of amazing to me because, you know, it goes back to the manufactured controversy issue. You know, the, the whole thyroid thing is not that complicated. Um, I mean, you know, we talked about it in the span of like 10 minutes uh, an hour ago. And, right. and that's pretty much the basis of it, you know, there are some nuances here and there, but that's the basis of it. Um, and that's it, <laughs> you know, but because it has lent itself to, um, uh, to appropriation by alternative medicine, uh, just by so many people, you know, either having it or thinking they have it yet still having symptoms that are not fixed. Uh, we've mm-hmm. seen this explosion of, um, of people offering this this uh, guru type advice, yeah, and most of it is just not helpful at all. Like you know, like you said, you know, with the supplements and the eat for your thyroid and all this stuff. I mean, it's just it's it's worthless. Is some of it because there is this interaction between our psychology and our physiology, such that some of the advice that the gurus are advising is really just going to make them psychologically feel better and then indirectly have an effect on their health? I would guess that that could be part of it. I think that when anyone buys a book for whatever it is, weight management, thyroid, you know, IBS, whatever, um, just by nature of focusing on their health a little bit more closely uh, and the fact that they now have a, a sunk cost, which may be, you know, the book or the the program that they've signed up for, some online program, whatever, you know, once that's in there, you want to feel like you're actually getting benefit from it because, well, gosh, you've already paid for it. So, you know, who wants to admit that uh, that was a waste of money? So I do think that there could be um, that aspect of it and people are getting some endorphin hit from that and starting to feel better, whether you want to call it placebo effect or something else. Sure. Uh, but, you know, usually what happens with that kind of stuff is, uh, and of course I see this all the time is people are like, yeah, I went to the naturopath for a while and, you know, I, I was feeling better for a few months and then, you know, then I really wasn't feeling that much better. In the last couple of years, I just not felt well. So I decided to come, you know, get another opinion because that's what happens. <laughs> Finally. Uh, the, 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 yeah. The placebo effect is not durable, it, you know? So if someone feels better for a few months and then they go back to baseline, it usually means that, that was a placebo effect. Yeah. 
the the other things that I think make people susceptible to the gurus is uh, some of the Hashimoto symptoms can affect appearance, and some of us we get so vain and oh my gosh, you know, like you're losing some hair or whatever it is, so you freak out and then you want the magic solution, and and then the other thing is that they've you know, this is an autoimmune disorder, and so therefore it involves your gut, and therefore you need to do this draconian diet, and if you mess up on this diet, then that's why, you know, you're not cured, and there's there's just so much out there with that as well, this, this whole autoimmune disorder space, and there's no way we can get into that. Um, oh, in, yeah. in general, no, no, you, that's... that's... I was just going to say, it's, it, it's amazing uh, what, what these practitioners can do because, you know, they tell people to eat these crazy diets and the person comes back and they're like, yeah, I, I just, I don't think I'm feeling that much better. And they're like, well, did you, did you stop all the dairy? And they're like, yeah. Do, well, come on. You didn't cheat just a little bit. Well, I had, ice, I had ice cream last night. Aha! Totally. Your That's fault. it. Right. Yeah. You have to be really strict about the dairy is the thing I heard, which I can't do. I have at least I felt better. So overall, because we have now only a, a couple of minutes and I really thank you for your time and especially for your patience when blog talk disconnected me. Overall, your advice would be to give your medical professional more respect for the education that he's had and to be aware of your own cognitive biases that are laid out from your understanding on that post in your blog. Again, the blog is hormonesdemystified.com and it is why smart people are stupid about their health. We're just calling him HD, Dr. HD. He doesn't have an actual doctor name, so don't feel like I've uh, missed that. Your advice overall is to take charge of their health and you've recommended Dr. Schur's book as a good place to start with that. Is that right? Yeah, and just to let everyone know, I mean, this is a friend of mine, so that's my bias, but I don't have a financial relationship with him. He's a preventive cardiologist who has written a book uh, called Your Best Health Ever, and um, his name's Dr. Brett Scherer. He's, he's on my blog in different forums, and he has a podcast called Boundless Health. But, um, yeah, I mean, he wrote a book that was just very sensible. You know, it, there was nothing sexy or sensational about it. It's just... Um, all the all uh, the basics, right? Like sleep plan. and diet and exercise and all those things. Yeah, all the the boring stuff, you know, sleep, mm-hmm. diet, exercise, being mindful, you know, things that um, really anyone would do well to follow. But he makes it just really doable because he gives you little discrete tasks each week. So I, yeah, I think his book is good. Um, and again, he's not paying me to say that. I just I just like the guy, sure. and I, I think the book is good too. Um, but yeah, I, I think people should. We have we have only about fifteen seconds or so, and and people oh, are here are okay. going to get cut off. No, no, you and I can keep talking, but uh, just for a few minutes. And uh, but uh, the people who are listening live are going to get cut off. They can come listen to the podcast, and that's fine. Um, anyway, goodbye, everybody who's listening live. We'll we'll finish a little bit with Dr. Scher's book here. Um, so basically, you would say cover the basics you know, follow the protocol that's in his book. And after you know that whatever problems are remaining might need a treatment, then go to your doctor and be willing to listen and respect the education of your doctor. Is that how you would sum it up? I I would, although I would also tell people that I realize it's a two-way street and some docs really aren't good listeners. And, uh, you know, so... I, I think if you 
you have to be, as a patient, you have to try to be aware uh, or have a good sense of whether your doc is really listening and whether they're, they're really um, carefully considering what's going on with you. And if you don't feel like you're getting that, then obviously you need to go somewhere else. But for someone, you know, when people come in and talk to me and, and I'm, I feel like I'm giving them a good ear and, um, and, you know, explaining things patiently and carefully, uh, you know, that's, that's when I would appeal to people to sort of take what I've said and, and give it the weight it deserves. Right. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. HT. <laughs> thank, as I said again, thank you for your patience. Um, yeah, and- no worries. We, we can talk again, uh, uh, soon about some of the other stuff that we've been knowing about. Exactly. Thank you so much. And I'll go ahead and let me actually let me end this episode.